Um, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, wherever you are in the world, and welcome to another episode of Endurance Chat. My name is Michael Zalavari, and today we are talking about the centenary event of the Le Mans 24 hours. That's it. We're finally here. It's taken us. Um, but we're doing this. It's the centenary event. We've been building up to this edition of Le Mans for years and years and years now. And it is finally upon us. And it is just an absolute... It's scary to think about. It's scary to think about this race being run for now 100 years. So what a, what a wild time we're in. And joining me today as we go through all the things you need to know... About 24 Hours of Le Mans, I am joined by Josh Cronin, Jeb the Rebel. Good evening for you, Jeb. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Currently, I literally just hit 9.15 p.m. on the eastern seaboard. Uh, so we're going to be burning the midnight oil here. Unfortunately, my coffee does not have caffeine in it. Uh, but we're talking about sports car racing, which is usually something that I'm known for talking about. So that should be fun. I, let's, let's, I can't wait to dig into uh, 100 years. 100 years. Of, uh, debatably the most prestigious race on the ooh, planet. But that's ooh. a whole conversation. Ooh, are, am I, are we allowed to have you on the podcast now that you've said that? Or do we just delete deb- you from this? I mean, I mean, 8500 is tomorrow. Oh. But we're not going to have... We, we actually, I remember having a very long debate in the server about what was more prestigious of a race. Because they're both historic, right? Yeah. One's actually older. That was a whole debate. Anyway, we'll anyway, talk about that some other time. That is, that is, yeah, that is another, that is another argument we can have another time. Jeb, That's multiple cans of worms there. <laughs> Jeb, the twenty-four oh. hours of Lamar. It is, as you said, arguably one of the most, in, uh, well, the most prestigious motor race in the world. It is one prong. I would say of, it is of the motorsport triple crown. The other two being, of course, the Indy Five Hundred and the Monaco Grand Prix. Uh, it is the absolute pinnacle of sports car racing uh, and the, the peak test of endurance. Uh, just what, what an event, right? What, what an event. It, it, it is, yeah, the, the pinnacle of motor racing, endurance racing. People build cars to come here and race and win. Just, it, it's, it's, it's amazing. Every year it sneaks up on me and every year I'm so much more hype for, for, for the 24 hours. Like, what, what is... What is your key thing about the Lamar 24 Hours that keeps you coming back to watch? In all honesty, it's probably... Well, I'm also just a nerd, so I just like his, like history and legacy. That is undoubtedly a part of it, but it is probably just the concept of this was... We have multiple endurance races. You know, We have the Rolex 24, we have Sebring 12 Hours, we have the Nürburgring 24, the Spa 24. Those are all great in their own regards, right? But this is kind of the first race to do that. Yeah. So I can kind of respect the tradition and the history of it. But it is also, you know, it, it's the grandest stage. When you actually look at through racing and the automotive industry as a whole, how many things date back to Le Mans and, and, and the Le Mans 24 Hours, um, it, really is, it really is kind of the, what is it? it really is kind of the mecca of sports car racing, uh, debatably of racing, uh, with the amount of history that's there, and so you know it, when there's something that is could be considered hollowed ground in the sport, uh, you're gonna jump at any chance you can to get there. That's why I'm going there this year, is because uh, uh, I've, I've, I've heard they, they, they run a race there. Yeah, I've heard they run a race there in June. I'm gonna go check it out. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, it, it really is. I mean, it's just it, it, it's hard to encompass with words why 
people and myself keep going back to watch Le Mans 24, the Le Mans 24 hour every year, because it really is, it's, what's sort of looking for, it's not normal. Like you're like, it's a 24 hour race that takes up a weekend and it's usually father's day, which you should be spending with your father's people. But it's so captivating. There's so much to it that we're going to hopefully talk about over the next 90 minutes. Um, that will help explain maybe to people who are a bit less, uh, knowledgeable in the sport and the race, uh, to kind of, uh, move them over to the dark side, if you will. Yes. Once you, once you're in, you, you never leave at sports cars. It's wonderful. Uh, and you touched on a few really key things there. Like this was really the first test of motor racing of cars. Uh, the whole philosophy of this event going back to its origins in 1923 was could a car do this could a car run continuously for 24 hours and you said it yourself there's so many things that have their origins have their starting points as part of this event uh, and there's something that i say that you know i i keep f- finding more evidence for is that it all comes back to lamar you know things like uh you know improvements in safety in road cars improvements in technology in road cars improvements in racing and in uh in officiating and in procedures they all somehow trace their way back to to this event this uh, this drive down a country road a, a country highway in the north of france it's it's wonderful and incredible how much this one event cooked up by some crazy Frenchman to see whether or not you could get a car to run 24 hours in a row uh, without it breaking down has permeated through the world of not just racing, but of motoring as well. Yeah, I mean, and even to, even just to touch on that too, things that we still have nowadays that trace their origins to the race, Porsches have keys, or Porsches, depending on how uh, fancy you are, uh, their keys are still on the left because of that, because of the traditional Le Mans start, which we'll talk about a bit later, I'd imagine. You know, how many, if you look even throughout history, how many cars have models or trims or even whole, like, car models from a manufacturer themselves that are named after Le Mans mm. or Mulsanne and stuff like that, right? And so it really is, it's hard to put into words how much this race and and this particular small section of French highway uh, permeated throughout the industry. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about the philosophy of the event. We we already mentioned that its origins come along as a as a test of of reliability. Could a car like these newfangled contraption, these motorized carts get around a circuit for 24 hours? Could they run continuously? Could they survive? Could they be repaired? Could they run efficiently for 24 hours without breaking down without having to pull up, pull off to the side and and stop this was the the philosophy of those first races those early challenges for motor racing and it's grown into something that's that's maybe not quite the same as those humble origins but but the true test of reliability here is can you get a car to run for 24 hours can you beat the event first before you beat your competitors. And that's something that has been a constant throughout the entirety of Le Mans now 100 year history. And, and and it is the event itself that is that is the hardest part to beat. And no one knows that more than, you know, Toyota. Yeah, and that's a whole, I mean, we could probably, looking at a run sheet, we can probably start in what, about the 80s and just keep bringing them up, keep, yeah, keep bringing up little blips. <laughs> the little, the hot maps, the hot points, if you will, of the entire Toyota versus Le Mans case. <laughs> absolutely the, the, yeah i mean just but yeah no you're right the, the aspect of the reliability and getting a car to last that long is 
it is kind of the interesting part of it, right? You know, it, it's just I, I've always said, and I mean, of course, I mean this not wishing any harm or anything, but it always is incredibly funny. One of the funniest things in the world is when a car breaks down and it's not yours. Right. <laughs> On the same time, oh, one of the worst things in the world is when your car breaks down. So it's incredibly funny to see, you know, multi-million dollar race teams have weird failures i'm not talking like oh they got a flat tire oh they blew the engine but you know weird failures like hey this headlight doesn't work anymore and we don't know why and so they got to start pulling fuses at like 3 a.m right that's that's the endearing part where it's like you need to cross all of your t's dot all of your i's if you want to win this race and this was kind of the first race to do that and uh, absolutely and it the the test of running for 24 hours on what mostly amounts to public highway, as you said, uh, produces some really weird things that happen. Like uh, we've seen what uh, in in the past we've seen uh, things like bodywork just completely fall apart and come off the car. We've seen uh, like ignition wires just pop off engines. And I uh, like there's a, a famous story from of 1983 where Derek Bell in the middle of the night after finally taking the lead had to pull the entire rear half of a Porsche 962, which is not a small feat. That's a very long no. car um, uh, like off just to plug in a, a, a wire that had popped off. Like, that's the, that's the, it was the only change he had to make. But he had to do that by himself. He had to pull the entire back end of the car off and plug in a wire to get going again. We've seen things like uh, full rear end changes to replace a gearbox. Yep. Audi, uh, Audi R8, they did that in, what, five minutes? They lost one lap changing an entire gearbox and rear assembly um, as an innovative solution to a problem they were having. We've seen turbos blow up and have to be repaired. We've seen cars cross the, cross the finish line and break at the end of the 24 hours. We've seen cars cross the finish line and break one lap before the end of the 24 hours. It's it's a unique challenge. And as the technology has improved, um, you know, you, you come up with these innovative solutions to solve these problems. And, you know, it wasn't all that long ago, Jeb, that we were talking about prototypes having brake changes in the 24 hours, prototypes filling yep. up oil, you know, having to stop for extended periods of periods of times to change oil filters, water filters, you know, change uh, parts on the engine that just doesn't seem to happen anymore. One of the things about this event is that it really pushes designers to make cars that are easily repairable and that can last because every second you're in the pits, you're not out on the racetrack. It's, it's, yeah. What sort of things can you think of that have been improvements to car design because of the challenge of this event? Uh, I, I think the main key, in all honesty, probably is quick swap parts. I mean, if you're if you're in typically a non endurance race, like a sprint race of some form, think like a Trans Am or something like that. If you break something, you know, wishbone, whatever, you usually just call it. It's usually not worth it to repair it and go thirty laps down in a fifty lap race. It, you, I mean, some teams will, you know, spirit of endurance and all that, but it usually is not worth that. But over twenty four hours, a lot can change, and so teams being able to take parts and go, particularly with LMP twos, I think is kind of the best example of this. They have they'll have entire corner assemblies, upper wishbone, lower wishbone, spring, and you know all the fixings realigned. So that if they ever broke a corner in a race, they can just pull it off and drop it on and get it out. They don't have to go find all of those parts and their fasteners in the garage, in the you know, in the lorries in the back, in the toolboxes, on the floors, and everything. They can just go boop boop, 
pull it out, put a new one in, that'll make a difference because, I mean, a difference between one lap and two lap, that Lamont, it is a big deal, but it's not really going to matter unless you have a yellow, which we'll talk about the safety cars yeah. later. Um, but that ability to just quick change parts is a big deal, even if you just look at pit stop technology for tires, right? Like, back in ye good old days, tires were, like, a long time. You usually just try to finish the race on your tires, but you obviously can't do that with a 24-hour race, right? Mm. So I, I think just kind of the refinement of the repair process uh, is kind of the biggest deal in terms of Le Mans. Yeah, and that's something we've seen more and more as time has gone on, as we've gotten into this era of optimization with race cars, uh, you know, uh, Things that used to, you know, take minutes or even, you know, tens of minutes, 20, 20 minutes or something now take two or three because the cars are designed in such a way that they can be modular, that they can, they can be changed quickly. And also even things that take a long period of time, uh, can have a, an effect on the race. Like, uh, I remember this is a very, very famous 2017 event where, in the first hour of the race, the, the Porsche number two car had a problem with its front hybrid regenerating system and they had to pull it into the pits and swap it out. And they did that in, I think, about 50 minutes. So they were 14 laps down at the beginning of the race in, in the first hour of the race. But what happened during the night is that all of their competitors ran into problems. And when their sister car failed in the morning of the race, they were all of a sudden in a position to win that race. But they had to pass three or four other lower class cars to get there. And that was like, they did that with like an hour to spare and they it was absolutely raucous because it wasn't just the drivers who won that race. It was the team who did that repair. And that's something we haven't yet talked about. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's a multi-class event. So, you know, in, in, in the past, the, the cars have been separated based on their engine displacement. So you had like a two liter class, a five liter class, et cetera, et cetera. Nowadays, it's a bit different, but we still have this tradition of, cars from multiple classes racing on the same track so you'll effectively have three or four or five or six races happening at once on the same track and traffic all of a sudden becomes a very key component in how you manage traffic and how you drive through traffic uh in order to to continue to keep your speed uh that's a different challenge that a lot of people may not have encountered before uh, and something you don't really see in a lot of motorsports unless you really seek it out. So if like, for example, things like Formula One or IndyCar or supercars or even GT3 racing around the world, there isn't really a lot of multi-class events that get a, a lot of high profile uh, action. So yeah, traffic and traffic management. How do you go about doing that in a way that's, you know, safe, <laughs> safe and fast? Uh, I- the main the main key, I mean, the core of it is to just to be smart about it. However, you are also asking racing drivers to be smart about it, which causes problems, um, and, and they usually don't like doing that. But, but the actual answer is you have to be smart with it, and that's why teams that win Le Mans, or sorry, drivers who do well at Le Mans, I guess is how I would phrase it, they know when to take risks and when not to. Obviously, you hear nowadays it's a 24-hour sprint race. You're driving flat out. The technology has evolved where you mechanically, you know, you're pretty much fine at the end of the 24 hours. It's it's just a matter of pace, right? But because of that, you don't have to drive at 100% all the time. Well, sorry. They expect you to drive at 100% all the time, but you don't have to because you have to worry about the lower cars. So the guys who are good don't drive at 100% all the time because they exercise caution with getting around lapped cars because they recognize, well, it doesn't matter if over a stint you're 30 seconds faster because you just absolutely nuke it in 
on GTs going into Molson and stuff like that, or Molson Corner. Um, because the one time that you don't clear him, the one time he doesn't see you, will end your race. Mm. And teams usually get really upset when you crash multi-million dollar prototypes, right? <laughs> so Yeah, that's that's not not ideal. So, yeah, so that causes problems. So the guys who are really good at the multi-class, they know in my in my opinion, the guys who are good at the multi-class prototypes are the guys who came from GTs because they know what to expect, right? Mm. It's generally accepted that the GTs will hold their line and the prototypes will go around them, right? That is generally accepted. Yeah. So that's the keys. The guys who have the experience of, okay, he will hold this. Now, eventually, every once in a while, you will see him move out of the way. But that that is the main thing, is the guys who know how to navigate the traffic, they know this is an okay spot to pass, this is a uh, spot to pass, this is a no-go zone, hmm. right? Good examples, Porsche curves, right? Oh, yeah, you, absolutely. You have to know what, you have to know, like, you, you need to start your pass going into the Porsche curves. If you catch a GT in the Porsche curve, in, like, the, let's call it, like, the second or third apex, you really should be waiting until the exit, yeah. right? Getting a pass through carding, I think it's called carding, yeah, right? The last, the, the last quarter yeah, of the Porsche curves. Yeah, I could have swore to change names. That is, an, that is a difficult corner. A, you're probably going to slow both of you guys down if you try and pass in that corner. But B, we've seen cars go side to side and then they spin and whatever, right? It, it, the guys who are fast and the guys who win Le Mans and the guys who win Le Mans multiple times know when and where to pass and when and where to wait. Because on paper, it looks, wow, he went three seconds a lap slower. That guy sucks. That was a bad move. But the main important key, he did not crash his car. Yeah. Right, and that's uh, that's absolutely the key thing. It's something that Lena Gade used to say when she was a uh, a race engineer, uh, car manager for one of the Audi LMP1 teams. Was that you got you got to push without risk? I think that's a great motto. It's a great motto to live by. You have to push without risk. It is generally accepted, especially in racing, that there will be some sort of risk associated with anything you do. Right. Yeah. The key is smart risk. Smart risk is I'm in a car going really fast. Dangerous risk is I'm in a car going really fast. I'm going to pass a car that's going not as fast as me at a spot that might not work, right? It, usually in racing, mights or could or possiblies usually aren't good. And and <laughs> so he probably sees me is a really bad presumption to go by when you go around the outside through Molson Corner. Yeah. And and it's something that is is a de- very different philosophy to like touring car racing or sprint racing or F1 racing where it is go 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 all the time. Over a co- over the course of 24 hours, one mistake can end your race and you know, if you keep if you keep play, uh, taking risks and playing chances with the lower class cars, eventually it won't pay off. And there is a litany of videos on YouTube on or whatever, whatever of cars of drivers making poor disor- poor decisions in traffic. And all you have to do is look up, say, Alan McNish at uh, 2011, yeah. or Audi at 2011, or Alex Davison at Musan Corner, or whatever, whatever, whatever. The number of times that a higher class car has had their race ruined or has ruined a lower class car's race by making contact at a part of the track where they have not been seen or they've not been expected to be there is it's it's one of the cornerstones of Lamar. it's one of one of the fascinating things about this race because it can all be going so well and it just takes a split second for it to all fall apart yeah, yeah it, it it is something unique and, and and that's his i mean historically you saw drivers would struggle with that drivers would come from as it was called at the time grand prix racing you're absolutely right. It's it's something that has been a challenge for drivers coming through. And another big challenge of that is also the circuit itself. It is a bit of a unique challenge in motorsport. There's nothing really right, yeah. that long 
uh, except for maybe the Nurburgring Nordschleifer. But with this sort of characteristic, so it's it, the current circuit exists as uh, was it thirteen point two six kilometers, which works out to be uh, sorry thirteen point six two six. Okay, I missed the digit there, um, which works out to be about eight and a half miles um, of uh, racetrack, half of which is everyday road, half of which is the Mulsanne Highway between Le Mans and Mulsanne. Uh, and the the rest of it is a permanent racetrack that only ever gets used for this event, which means that, you know, the as the weekend progresses, the week progresses, the track really rubbers in and really starts to feel more and more uh, safe and more and more grippy. Um, but of course, being part public road means there's a lot of considerations to deal with uh, on the Long Mulsanne Strait. 13.62 kilometers, that's a long circuit. And that means that if something goes wrong, at, at you know very early on the lap you've got a long way to carry an issue before you can get back to the pits yeah and, that, and that's that, that's the other key t- i mean we've seen cars had me- can't have mechanical problems early in the lap and it's like well guess what you're lumping it back now this isn't the norwich life you don't have a grand prix strike uh kind of uh do over you know you don't get the mulligan of looping back into the pits and like okay we'll just discount your lap it's like no no like you've you've made your bed you will now sleep in it yeah and like we've seen race leaders come to cropper in the opening part of the lap and just have ha- like failed before they get to the end it, like because one, one of the things as well that we haven't quite talked about is that part of the whole shtick about pushing technology and reliability is that you must get to the pits like if you have a problem on track if you can't get to the pits if your car comes to a stop and is unrecoverable then you are out of the race and we've seen time and time again things like that's why you know the story about Derek Bell pulling the half of the the nine six three uh, nine six two rather off to try and fix a problem is is so incredible. It's because if he didn't do that, if he didn't diagnose that problem and get it back to the pits, that car would have been out of the race. And like we saw it happen to Toyota, to Toyota like three or four times over the course of the last decade, a small problem, something like a wiring loom melting at the wrong part of the circuit can ruin your race. Getting a puncture in the first corner can ruin your race. It's one of those unique sort of challenges where if you are unable to limp your car home, that is it. You are done. And 13 kilometers is a long way to limp your car home. Right. I mean, exactly. It's, it's, it, there's a reason it is a race that manufacturers have fought for years and years to win. And there's a reason the manufacturers uh, will openly admit and are proud that they have won this race is because mm. it really is the ultimate test of endurance. So the track itself, we've sort of said it's 13.6 kilometers. We've said it uses public road. Uh, there's a few things about it, though, that are beyond that pretty unique. Uh, one thing that I've just seen uh, looking at the Wikipedia page for the track is that you spend over 80% of your lap on full throttle here. Now, when we talk about pushing engines, transmissions, and cars to their absolute limit... 80% of the lap at full throttle, that is that is a lot. And it's not just that as well. You go from, what, under 100 kilometers per hour to over 300 kilometers per hour five times over the course of the lap. If that's not adding strain to components, geez, I don't know what is. Do you, Can you think of any other track in the world where over the course of three and a half minutes, four minutes, you're going from like 100 to 300 that often, that quickly? No. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, the cop out answers are the Nurburgring or Daytona, but well, even, <laughs> even then, even, I don't. Think, even then, the numbers don't add up. Even yeah, even at Daytona, even if you're using the 24 hour loop, you're not. You're doing that what like once a lap, getting up to that sort of speed. And, yeah, and that's you know once every you know two minutes effectively. It's it's just it's something that is completely foreign. 
And that's why, like, the cars that do well here are designed specifically for this one track. Right, yeah. And I mean, that's a whole other thing we can talk about later, too, during our endurance part, is, like, the, the one-offs, where it's like, well, we're gonna just going to build this car for Le Mans. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it'll suck at every other circuit, but it's going to do really good at Le Mans. All right, well, go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing. That, that is the pull of this event. You know, like, we, we try... Well, not we try. The World Endurance Championship exists because we want a series to get value out of building cars for Le Mans. And I mean, like... <laughs> no, but, like, the, the World Endurance Championship wouldn't exist without this event. And I don't think there'd right. be too many people who disagree with that. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest. If you, if you disagree with that, I, I just... I, I it'd have to be a really good argument because <laughs> uh, it's not the six hours of Monza that's keeping the series up. It's, it's a neat event. That's a good event. It's a fun. It's probably one of the better events actually. It's great, but that is not the cornerstone of the series. Exactly. This is the cornerstone of the series. Uh, this track, the keystone of the series, pretty much. Um, this track has a cool, uh, a few really cool elements, and it, I, I just do want to pull apart the the certain sections of the track because. You know, while while it is very much on throttle and very long straights, uh, the corners of these uh, of this track have their own personality, and they really can't be sort of you know forgotten about. You can set up a car here with the absolute minimum of downforce, and you know run it as a straight line bullet. But then you come a come a foul of things like you know the Porsche curves, Turt Rouge, where you've really got to load the car in on the aerodynamics to get through. It's a it's a very delicate balancing act, and uh, like one of the things I think. Uh, has, the, the circuit has done well is that each change that they have made because you know over the course of a hundred years there's been plenty of changes it's added something to the circuit instead of taking it away uh so that you know we've got the high speed sections of the you know the forest s's Tertruge, uh, uh indianapolis which i think is one of my favorite corners in the world and the porsche curves and then you've got these really low speed sections you know the mulsanne corners the oh, sorry the mulsanne chicanes the mulsanne corner arnage and the four chicanes each one of these corners has its own story uh and they're all very unique in the way that they're they're put about jeb what's your what's your favorite part of the track and why that's a really good uh that's actually a really good question tet rouge is fun yep why, uh, why is mess it up fun? and then you it's 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 just the the high speed you, there's one turn in bang hit the apex right and you run it and you get that you just get the good feeling of i have carried a ton of speed onto this very long straightaway and just nailing that corner is just it, that including like maybe the exit of the forest s's too like i'd group both of those together as just when you get both of those i mean it's it's just like butter smooth uh what else I'm going to go with uh, Indianapolis, obviously. Just the, the quick, like, flick in, using the downforce to get the car turned and then braking and hoping you don't hit the tire wall. Um, it's just, it's so satisfying when it gets right. And it looks awesome, too. That like, is true. That, that helps. And the, the reason it's called Indianapolis is because of the massive banking on that corner. You're coming down right. through the trees from Mulsan. Uh, and then you've got this this kink that you take at 300 kilometers per hour, get the car slowed down to get into this banking that's on the the, the left. So we're turning left, which is like you barely ever turn left in at Le Mans, and you just got to get it tucked into the banking, hope everything sticks, and then you shoot out to the slowest corner on the track, which is the the very flat Arnage, which is a 90 degree uh, right hander. And if you go off at Arnage, you're literally in someone's front garden, <laughs> which I always yeah. find hilarious. Right, right, yeah. Which is which is another reason why uh, Arnage is a funny corner. Yeah, um, Arnage is a weird corner because 
on paper, I mean, it's it, like it's a ninety degree right. It's yeah, I'm gonna be honest. It's pretty pretty basic. It's a ninety degree right hand corner. But the amount of professional paid by a manufacturer racing drivers that mess up that corner it is like it's an anomaly how high that number is. Yeah, well, is it because it's it should not be that hard. It's well, just a ninety degree right. But there's something about it that just catch people. I, I think it's, it's it's like catching GTs. Maybe it's just because it is so low speed compared to the other ones. It like throws them off. I just, I don't I don't know why. It's an, it's a mystery. Well, yeah, I, I I'd say maybe because you've spent so much time at such high speed that when you take all of the downforce off of the car suddenly like that, that makes everything a lot harder because it's it's not. It's not an easy corner because it's kind of off cambered as well. So it's it's a very sort of difficult little thing that you've you've got to negotiate after you've just you know gone three hundred kilometers per hour through a kink, one hundred and eighty kilometers per hour in a bank turn, and try to navigate a GT car that's you know going a lot slower than you as you dive to the apex of this sixty kilometer per hour right hander that's completely flat. It just kind of comes out of nowhere. It seems to feel like yeah, you could do like a full hour long documentary on just why Arnage catches people out and i don't i don't have an answer for you it just does it's it's just because it's the corner that's different yeah if arnage was like a second now if arnage was like a third gear like a sweeper like if it was just indianapolis but like a gap the other way around the way we we would not be having this conversation right now we would just be like oh yeah also arnage exists so there's something about it so they've done something to that corner in some way something something is a muck there's something there's something up it's pretty cool. It's it's a lot of personality. I think Anarch is one of the corners that has gone through the smallest amount of changes over its 100-year history. Because even in the first editions of Le Mans, Indianapolis and Arnage were still the same as they are now. Um, you know, there's been updates to, you know, the curbing and it's now permanent racetrack as opposed to being part of the, the public roads. But Indianapolis and Arnage have basically stayed the same. Um Everything else, though, pretty much everything else, every other part of the track has changed in some way over the course of the last hundred years. And I think, uh, as you said, the run through the Forest Esses and Tertrouge is a great change. Um, that one was introduced uh, in the ooh, whereabouts was that introduced? Um, the early, well, the very early days. You know, the the oldest Dunlop Bridge, and any motorsport fan will know about the Dunlop bridges uh, that exist around many circuits around the world. The oldest oldest Dunlop Bridge is at. Uh, uh, the uh, Forest S's uh, and the first chicane, the Dunlop chicane. So that's that's really cool. Um, but you know things like the Ford chicanes were introduced because of big accidents of tragedies uh, that are, that have occurred because you know cars were coming in too fast to that sections. Places like the Porsche Curve have come in to try and slow cars down through difficult cornering uh, to make it more safe. Uh, things like Mulsanne, the Mulsanne uh, chicanes rather have come in to continue evolving the circuit to meet FIA regulations and like people were so against uh, the the introduction of two chicanes to break up a five kilometer straight but you've got to say it's actually added another dimension to the circuit because yeah you're now testing everything much more by getting down to those lower speeds and then getting back up to those high speeds again and again and again these the iterations of this circuit are plentiful, and you can go onto Wikipedia and have a look at how the circuit has changed each time. Um, but it still kept that character and still kept the the test um, across across the the years. Uh, of course, with a twenty four hour race, uh, something that does happen is sunrise and sunset. And Jeb, right. have you have you seen an onboard of sunrise and sunset through a car that's ha- competing at Le Mans? 
Maybe. Maybe. Well, I mean, I, I I likely have at some point. I just don't remember it. Well, I would I would imagine I've watched it for five years. Yeah. and I've watched the sunsets and the sunrises. So I'm gonna go ahead and say yes. Yeah. Uh, what happens when you're coming down out of Mosan Corner? Uh, when you when you're heading towards Indianapolis and Arnage at sunset? Uh, you can't see anything. You can't see shit. <laughs> it's like it's like. Oh yeah, we can swear. You can't see shit. <laughs> Yeah, basically, one of the, one of the unique things about a twenty four hour race, well, maybe not unique, but like you have to drive through these periods of low visibility, like right. you know, coming down between the trees at Mulsan, uh, it, at sunset, you're basically staring directly into the sunrise, uh, the sunset rather, and you know, trying to pass a GT car as you're blindsided as he pops out of the shadows is a pretty hard time, uh, and then like sunrise as well, sunrise over the Dunlop Bridge is. Oh, I love those pictures. It's also blinding, but yeah, I mean, I do, th- I do think, yeah, I was, I was trying to remember the. <laughs> funny enough, I was trying to remember the origin orientation of the track. I was panicking and quickly scrolling around Google Maps. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think uh, like the forest S's are one of those corners where it's also a little bit annoying during the sun. Yeah, in the uh, sunrise. Sunrise. Yeah, yeah so that's not great. Being not able to see. But it's uh, but it's interesting. It is it is a unique aspect of the track. It is having to, or sorry, maybe not of the track, but of endurance racing is having to race through that. Right. Mm. Obviously, you have weather and stuff too, but just the changing light conditions. Because you'd actually be surprised how much different a track feels at night. And I know that sounds dumb, but when it's night and it's dark, particularly if it's an area like Lamar or the Nurburgring where there's nothing lit up, you lose what we would call your sight picture as a driver. You lose your references for here's my turn-in point, here's my breaking point, all of that. You lose those because, well, you can't see them. Yeah. So you at that point, you then you, you get to the point where you have to start being able to drive almost by feel at that point. You have to just kind of know what's coming. Yeah. Right? It's all Rather muscle than memory. Cust- yeah, basically off of muscle memory, which is why the guys who are good at night – are usually the better drivers overall. And as well, there's, you know, there's safety in that as well. So each driver must do five laps at night in practice in order to be qualified to be able to run in the 24 hours, which I think is a good thing um, because yep. it is it is a unique thing. And it's not like this is Daytona where or, you know, Singapore, where you've got the circuit lit up by a million and one lights. It's basically effectively almost daytime. Uh, this is the middle of the French countryside. There are trees lining the circuit on both sides. There is no streetlights. You are basically plunging into the darkness at 300 kilometers per hour with nothing but your, your headlights to to guide the way. Doesn't that sound terrifying? Yeah, it's uh, well, especially when you think about what uh, people in the 60s thought headlights did. Um, yeah, like, even with modern technology, it's not great. Like, can you imagine? Can you imagine, like in the in the late '60s, in a Porsche 911, you know, E series, so like a two liter engine with that level, like those headlights, and like just trying to drive, <laughs> drive it all, <laughs> like trying to drive yeah. at like maximum speed as you've got like guys in Ford GTs wrapping past you. No, that sounds like it sucks. <laughs> well, it sounds like it'd be awesome, but it sounds like it'd be terrifying. Yeah, like two sides of the same coin, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, speaking of cars, uh, over the hundred-year history, there has been a lot of different eras of of this event in terms of the the cars and the regulations. So, of course, like F one has its own eras with you know things like the turbocharged era and the part of time when they were using F Formula Two cars for some reason. I don't know. Uh, and then you know V twelve, V ten, whatever, whatever, whatever. Uh, 
IndyCar, I'm sure, has had its own history with that event and, you know, how cars have been built to be efficient at that event. And sports cars have the same. But, of course, for a long time in the early days, this event was people building cars in their garage Especially before, the, especially before the Second World War, it was people building cars in their garage and bringing it to the event to try and test uh, their their car versus everyone else. So it's it's kind of interesting that like the first throws of the event have what winners that like we'd never even hear of nowadays. Like, have you ever heard of a a a Chenard Walker? No, a Lorraine Dietrich. Who are these people? I mean, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Clear, but clearly. Clearly, but like the the thing is, these these cars are uh, were basically like coaches almost. These were these were the the first iterations of of you know cars, not just race cars, but cars um, that had been put to this challenge. And it wasn't until after the war that we started to see things like you know more contemporary manufacturers bringing uh, proper purpose built cars to race at Le Mans. And I think it really started, you know, after the war with Ferrari, they were the first ones to really do it. Yeah. And I think, I think Enzo's philosophy of selling road cars to finance his race team was, uh, definitely something that we still really don't see now. I mean, we're starting to see a comeback, like a resurgence of that nowadays. Mm. Uh, but I mean, just what, like, just what an interesting philosophy, especially for the time. Right. I mean, you gotta think of it in the fifties, uh, that's when the automotive industry is starting to kind of uh, snowball, right? The 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 everyday man is uh, buying the car for his wife and daughter and son, you know, the the, the nuclear family. That's when the automotive industry is booming, and he's like, no, we're not going to capitalize on that and you know become. We're not going to be the Henry Ford, right? We're not going to be the Louis Chevrolet. We're going to be Ferrari. We're just going to build race cars, and yeah, we'll sell a couple road cars, but we're just selling them just so we can kind of go racing, yeah. you know. And, I mean, that's probably part of the reason why Ferrari won, like, what, four in the period of the, the 50s and 60s? Well, in fact, they won six in a row at the start of the 60s, uh, all through just building prototype, well, sorry, building cars that you, uh, people could buy. Because, again, in this era, it was very much a lot of people, uh, a lot of people building cars or buying cars and bringing their car to Le Mans and paying some people to drive it to see if they could win. And like you look at you look at like uh, Jaguar who won one two three four five in this period of time in the D type predominantly it was really like while yes Jaguar were in, like sending their cars over to race there was also people who were buying those cars those D types and going over to race independently. Yeah, really, kind of the first the first um, uh, the first kind of iteration of uh, I guess privateering. In racing, which we see nowadays too, right? With especially with Proton and Jota and all those mm. guys getting their fancy nine six threes, but uh, kind of kind of a, a very rudimentary version of that was guys just buying road cars because they were effectively road cars. Yeah, and going, hey, we're gonna go racing. You, that's it's it's really neat to look through old racing results because a lot of times the old uh, the old racing results, the team credit, the team like n- name that is credited it is usually just like the guy's last name. Yeah, like because <laughs> it's just him. Yeah. So, like, for example, in 1956, the Aston Martin uh, DBR1, that one, was uh, by uh, was entered under David Brown Racing, who was just yep. a guy who made tools and entered a car. Yeah, pretty much. Checks, yeah, checks out. It's yeah. uh, David Brown went racing. And, and yeah, go. sorry, they won. that's it. 
the really the real next. Oh, that's the Carol Shelby car. Yeah, that was uh, Carol Shelby and Roy Salvadori. Uh, so you know, two very notable drivers. But yeah, it just entered under the dude who made tools for Aston Martin. Like, because why wouldn't you? I mean, you're gonna have to use them for a 24 hour race. Exactly. Might as well, might as well get that branding in there. Yeah. Um. As well, in the 60s, uh, once we started to get through the era of the the garageista into what we really, what I would call really the first factory era of racing where we have teams like ferrari who are entering cars under their own name uh and uh, you know really putting their factory as like we are building cars specifically to win this race uh we also saw like the first sponsorship of cars at Le Mans in the late 60s and this this era in the 60s could really be defined as the battle of ford versus ferrari and if you haven't seen the movie ford versus ferrari I do recommend it because I've heard it's a very, very good movie, but it was really the epitome of that era of racing. You have the people who are building these cars specifically for these event, for this event rather, uh, and all the politics that come behind it. It was really the birth of factory racing almost. Yeah, and that's, that's, I would argue that the, uh, the, there's a distinct change, a shift that happens in racing around the 60s where you start getting, you had factories before, but that's where you kind of start getting what we would consider the modern factory team. Mm. Uh, and, and actually, you could actually even argue that's also where you get the, like the, the, the modern pseudo factory team. Yeah, right? the modern works. That's where you, yeah, the, the, the dealership teams, right? Where it's like, well, they're not the factory. They're actually representing this dealership, but they're, they're the factory, right? So and that's kind of like the, the, the Ford versus Ferrari, like 65, 66 era is kind of where that starts. Like that, that's kind of what I would consider the nucleus of what is very prevalent in modern racing. That That's where it starts is it's with Shell or Ford going to Shelby and going, all right, like, hang on, let's, let, let's do something here. Right. So it's, it, and it's interesting to see how that has evolved in some ways. It is still quite the same. Uh, well, yeah, in a lot of ways, it's still quite the same. But really, that that involvement from Ford was the first time that we'd seen a factory on mass build something specifically win- to win this event, and it was all because if you haven't don't know the story of Ford versus or like the the that sort of era of racing, and it was all because uh, Ford wanted to buy Ferrari, and Ferrari basically said, "This is Enzo Ferrari." Basically said at the last minute, "No." I want to control my race team. That is not part of the deal. And so Ford were like, well, stuff you. We're going to win your race that you've won for the last six years straight, and you're going to suck it. And there you go. That's basically why Ford, the Ford GT exists. Yeah, I was going to say, and, and, and uh, to be honest, they won. They, I mean, did. they did. It took them they, a few they years, an but they, job. they did. Um, but after, after the Ford versus Ferrari era, something kind of new and kind of special happened. Uh, and that was the birth of the prototype. And it was all because of a loophole in the Group 5 regulations. So in 1969, uh, a new set of regulations came in. Oh, sorry, 1968 it started. A new set of regulations came in that said, because uh, basically the car's getting too quick. It's too scary, too uh, too dangerous. We're going to limit the uh, limit the performance of the cars um, in our sports car category. But we're going to offer a lower category, Group 5, where you've got to make... 25 road-going versions of this car in order to be able to compete. And Porsche were like, hang on, hang on, hang on. If we build 25 absolutely ridiculous prototypes that you can drive on the road, then we can enter an absolutely ridiculous prototype in this series. And there you have 
the Porsche 917, arguably the first homologation special. And that kicked off yeah. a brand new era of motorsports. Yeah, yeah, uh, I would actually agree with that. It kind of was the first homologation special because that's where you kind of start seeing the the, the tomfoolery aspect of racing. The the the, the yes and. Yeah, the loopholes uh, or, or started n- to be exploited. The no buts, <laughs> yeah. right? The, the no, this is, uh, that is, uh, yeah, yes, this, this is the luggage tray where you would obviously logically store your luggage on your weekend getaway to your cottage in your 917. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Uh, th- that's that's where you start to see, yeah, you start to see the the bending the rules. It's bending the rules. I'm trying to. It's you. You are fulfilling the letter of the law, but you are not necessarily following the spirit of the law, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you, you are. You officially that is in fact a container for luggage. <laughs> Would that traditionally be considered a container for luggage? No, no. It's in an engine bay, <laughs> but officially. It does fit a thing of luggage, so it is. Yeah, and like the birth of the sports prototype in 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 a in a sense that like you know these cars, these Porsche nine seventeens were bespoke race cars that had been effectively modified so that way they could still race like run on the road. Like yes, the Ford GT forty was a race car, but it's not. It wasn't a race car in the way that Porsche built their nine seventeen. Like, the 917 was always going to be a race car first, and it was, you know, a 12-cylinder, 5-liter engine in an 800-kilogram magnesium chassis uh, that, like, those words are terrifying when you put them together. Uh, but it really kicked off a new a new, en- a new era of racing, you know, homologation specials, which turned into prototype racing, which turned into a, something amazing and terrifying which was Group C. And, you know, part of Group C was, you know, dealing with the the oil crisis and putting in a bunch of regulations to limit fuel usage. But it really turned into one of the most open and competitive uh, regulations that had ever existed. Uh, You know, people still talk about Group C, Jeb, as one of the golden eras of, of motorsport, not just of sports cars, but of motorsport. And if you look at the results... It seems very dominated by one manufacturer, but that doesn't really tell the whole story. It was a, a, a smorgasbord of 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 manufacturers racing uh, at the very top of the mall. Right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously Porsche. Nobody's perfect, right? Etc. We've all we've all seen the poster, the yeah. posters. But uh, the the really what Porsche also brought to the table too is, and I apologize because I know we for a matter of fact we will get comments about me saying Porsche, not Porsche. <laughs> I don't care. Naughty boy. Um, is uh, <laughs> cry about it. Get your own podcast. I, <laughs> this is my podcast. Yeah. Anyway. Today will be uh, Josh's last episode <laughs> of a nerd chat. Uh, no, but so what they did is they they offered. Uh, I mean, like what, like with everything I've said previously. Yeah, you can see a little bit of it beforehand, but this is where we start getting into the customer racing aspect of it too. You can see you start seeing privateer Porsches. Right? And this is customer racing might not be the right. No, absolutely. Uh, phrasing racing is, is but, absolutely right. Okay, then yeah. So customer racing, because you can see. I mean, if, if you look at a good example is if you watch any any non Le Mans Group C race. First of all, sorry, because some of them aren't great. No, but uh, most of the entry lists are nine six twos, and they're usually all by a whole bunch of different teams because that was kind of just the car that everybody had. It was good. The parts were available, and it was proven to be a winning car. And that was why they got their uh, their nice free. 
They're nice. Uh, they're, they're, they're they're nice. Uh, let's call it free marketing. And mm. the free marketing was uh, everybody owning one, so they just told all their friends to buy one. And yeah, as you said, it was a reliable machine that was capable of winning races in anyone's hands. Like you made reference to it beforehand, the every, uh, Nobody's Perfect poster, very famous poster for the 1983 Le Mans uh, victory where the top eight cars were Porsche 962s. Admittedly, well, the, only the top two were the factory, but you know, you had Andretti racing in uh, third place. You had Kramer on that list. You had Joost on that list. It was a domination by a brand partly through weight of numbers but also because they were the cars that got to the finish they were the cars that were able to compete at that high level and get all the way to the end of that race and complete that race you know the only car on that list that wasn't a Porsche 956 in that uh, in that race was a Sauber that finished 32 laps back and so that's you know sure weight of numbers is one thing but porsche really invested in those that customer base which is something that still exists this very day like porsche are one of the leading uh gt brands because their customers are so loyal because they have all this customer support in that yeah i think they have that their experience too it's just the nature of racing is a very interesting industry to try and cater to a customer and customer service a usually sucks as a job it, customer yeah, service true. in its nature is very difficult right but especially in racing because customer service in racing you have less opportunities to impress the customer because you don't have as many races in a season as you do you know board meetings or whatever and more importantly it's a pretty high ultimatum if they're not pleased because the customer's usually out a lot of money or even more money because they've also taken somebody else's race car with them. Yeah. Right. So, and more importantly, arguably worse than when the customer crashes your car and then blames you on it is when your car blows up because of something that is actually your fault. Right. That is, that is, that's not, you. that's not to, to go corporate for a second. That's not how you encourage repeat customers. No, it's no, no, no. People to shop again. Right. So, and that's what Porsche did. And they worked pretty hard to build that was they actually just, so for the first couple of years, they actually just built the better cars. Mm. Right. And then obviously anybody who wanted to go racing was like, well, why would I not buy the best car? Exactly. The only obstacle being money. Right. And so if you actually have the best car, which they did with the 956 and the 962, at at that point, you basically don't even have to do like, oh, what are our competitors doing? How can we compete with them? Because everyone else is asking that question about you. Yeah, because it's you, you can kind of take a step back and go, we are the best. Yeah. <laughs> we I, I, we I, don't have – so just keep making the cars – just make them better, right? Just make improvements on them to make them more reliable. But the car's already good. You're, you're ahead of the curve. Yeah. You don't have to invest all your money in trying to catch up. You can spend all your money, paradoxically, on making the cars more reliable. So once you build the best car, you no longer have to like worry about – uh, trying to catch up to people exactly and, and porsche really hit group c with a hammer and were the, the the best team for the first half of it and they finally got some uh challenge by jaguar and sauber in the later half but by that point porsche had won what one two three four five six seven in a row uh and were very much at the head of the Le Mans winners list before jaguar finally overcame that hurdle uh in 1988 and then group c kind of died <laughs> unfortunately yeah it starts it starts to go the way the dinosaurs at that point yeah um it of course group c had existed for a long period of time at that point and had done very well for itself but the involvement of 
uh, Bernie Eccleston and Max Mosley and John Marie Ballister, which are names that if you're F1 fans, you may recall and you may be, be aware of. Um, but it kind of all came to a, a grinding halt in 1991, which saw a bit of a bit of a, a a lean period for uh Lamar and for sports cars and if you want to know more about how that all happened uh there is a great post by our friend Cookie Monster FL Austin Zetsman who has uh put that up on Reddit uh it's called the death of group C so um give have a look for that because it's a it's a great write up and really goes into the politics behind why decisions were made by the way that they the, they were and how that played out at Le Mans. Because for a while there, it looked like the event could be on some very, very lean standing. I mean, I, I think it was the 1993 Le Mans, 1992, where they had 20 entries or 24 entries or something like that. So it was 28 entries uh, for, for the 1992 event, which is, you know, low. Remarkably. Yeah. Uh, but we did see a revival. We did see a revival with uh, GT1, the the top era of GT racing, you could argue, um, where you know things like the McLaren F1 and 911 GT1 and uh, the Nissan R390 really came to the fore, and that was that was a pretty cool era, even if it only lasted a few years. Yeah, it, it was the, the the GT1 era is really hard to explain to normal racing or like to normal non-racing people as to why it's so cool because it's just like it's just objectively funny watching every <laughs> automotive manufacturer try and justify how why they've built a sports car right it's just like, like trying to justify yeah yeah this is yeah this is a road car this is a road car yep fuel tanks in the tr- trunks in the fuel tank etc right we've all seen the funny jokes yeah. but it's that that was just that was the funny part was watching the manufacturers go, yeah, this is a, ro-. I mean, some of them were, I mean, the, the McLaren F1 was actually a road car, right? Yeah, but I mean, but like, it's a it was, road car that, you know, goes 300 and whatever, whatever kilometers per hour. Yeah, it, like, it's a road car, it's a road car that's made to go racing. It's like, this is a car that is built to be a race car, and they went, oh, yeah, we gotta make this a road car. Well, like, this, Bam, this, turn this... signals, headlights, second passenger seat, a little bit of room for the luggage, you know, uh, yeah. with some of the other ones. Well, I mean, yeah, the, you know, like, there was, you go, road car. That was the thing, right? Ship we it. we made we it caused manufacturers to make prototypes uh, that were like, sorry, it caused manufacturers to make road cars that were actually just race cars, and like that's why things like the Nissan R three ninety exist. <laughs> and there's like two examples of it in the world because they really just made a car so that way they could turn it into a race car. Uh, like that was the design philosophy for GT one. Yeah, pretty much. But, but that's also led to uh, road cars that sell for an absolutely insane amount of money at auction because of it. Yeah. Uh, or serve as really great final unlockables in racing games, mm. uh, which, I mean, fair. They're cool. I would love to know what the guy who owns the one R390, it's the R390? Yeah. Uh, yeah. What, what he thinks wonder, of the car. I wonder what he's up to. Yeah. He, should, uh, he should drive that around. Yeah. I mean, I, I can almost guarantee you he's never driven it. I mean, but, yeah. <laughs> I want to hear the, I want to hear his thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Uh, when GT1 all kind of fell apart, it did give way to a kind of second golden era. Not imme- not immediately, but certainly the start of something that was LMP1, the Le Mans prototype, purpose-built race cars for Le Mans. 
Uh, and, you know, this era was dominated by Audi with the R8 and then the R10 and then the R15. Uh, not really the R15, but then the R18. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it, it brought in as well the the sort of diesel era of, of racing, you know, uh, you know, using the higher calorific value of diesel as a fuel to develop diesel as a fuel for road cars. And that was the justification behind it. That was the, the push from manufacturers. They basically said, we want to develop diesel as a technology. So let us race cars or make it better for us to race cars that are diesel. And that's, that's what happened at Le Mans. You, you know, uh, from what, 2006 all the way to 2014, cars that won at Le Mans were all diesel powered. And that's, that's, a, that's a pretty cool way to test your technology, isn't it? Taking it for a 24-hour sojourn around the, the you know, French countryside. Yeah, it, it really, I mean, it also serves to, to um, kind of cater to the, the uh, race on Sunday, saw on Monday. Uh, Philosophy, yeah. All the time, right? And it's, it's it, it also, I mean, it also proved the viability of diesel as a race car, too. I mean, it didn't really, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, I'm, not, I'm no way an expert on diesels, but that was kind of like, we never really had diesel race cars before the point. We did a couple of diesel road cars at that point, but I, we never had diesel race cars. And so I they can't kind of proved that. diesel race car, no. Yeah, exactly right. It's, uh, it's, it's, I mean, it, it, it really did innovate. And, and the other key, too, is the, the aspect of the diesel engine gave you a lot of torque, which really mattered in a light race car because you get out of corners better. Mm. Um, especially which, for which, a track like Le Mans, where you've got. Especially long straights, Le Mans, yeah. yeah. Where you need to get out of corners quickly, exactly. It's uh, well, the other key too is also with the prototypes being lighter, they don't have as much mechanical grip out of the corner, and so they can't get out of the corner faster because the GTs weigh more and they put the weight down. You know? Yeah. Um. So that torque, I mean, it helps with that too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and of course, you you know then have like downforce monsters in in these cars, like the 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 efficiency of downforce that through the early two thousands into the mid two thousands and you know twenty tens really just completely changed the way that that racing was done uh at at a sport you know in sports cars you know that made things like the porsche curves you know for prototypes areas where you could go flat through the first half of them which is absurd absurd that you could you know possibly go through part of the porsche curves just absolutely flat to the floor like that's ridiculous yeah, and that's that's where we started seeing the speeds that we hadn't seen previously. We always, we still have some records, some tracks set by these cars that have not been beaten, mm. right? Because that was it was also it was also the peak of 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 kind of spending in in top class prototype racing. I mean, we R eights were having custom tire compounds made for them, and their yeah. LMP one through level, right? I mean, it's there's there's the speed. It, it is amazing. Even nowadays, we've broken some of these records because just the level of I mean, just straight factory up all money excess, that was good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Factory excess, money, just work that was going into these cars. It's incredible we've broken some of these records. I thought that would have stood for a lot longer. Well, that was the thing, because what came after the diesels, Jeb? The hybrids. And the hybrids. That that was a big turning point in modern racing. The the idea that you could build a car with a electric motor, uh, like a hybrid electric uh, petrol engine in it, and have it work so efficiently and so effectively. And, you know, the the hybrid era of LMP1 racing from like 2012 all the way through to 2017 is arguably one of the best eras in motorsport. You know, for, for a lot of us who have been watching in modern times, that's the era that we first started watching. You know, I came into watching 24 Hours of Law just prior to the hybrid era in about 2007, 2008. But for a lot of people, this is 
the first sports cars that they watched. When did you start start watching Le Mans? Uh, I'm a bad example. The answer is 2017, yeah. but uh, which is great because I voted 2016. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that was well. I'm also I'm also a lot, a lot younger than you. To be not honest. that much younger. Um, a decent amount. Uh, uh, okay, no, just I, quick, just, just quick sidebar. Quick sidebar. When we started this podcast eight years ago, I was a budding young 20 year old with the world in front of me. Now to be the one to be like, oh, I'm a lot younger than you now. God damn, that makes me feel old. Yeah, Bruh. sorry. Anyway, uh, wow, anyway, your bedtime soon. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, no. So I started watching in 2017, and, and even I mean, even over the last uh, three or four, five, last well, six years. I mean, yeah, seven, it goes quick, I'm doesn't old. it? Uh, time flies. Uh, you've seen the evolution, he says, looking at back to back to back to back to back Toyota wins. Lol. Um, yeah, I, I remember when I was a Toyota fan, and then they actually won it, and I was like, yeah, and then they won it the second time, and I was like, yeah, yeah. and by the third time, I was like, um, <laughs> I'm on, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on We will touch on now. that again, we will touch on that again. Yes. Because after the LMP1 hybrid era kind of ended, through factory access, through a lot of spending by the likes of Porsche and Audi and Toyota, less so Toyota, yeah. but more so Porsche and Audi, the whole thing with the diesel emission scandal that kind of killed diesel as a, a race fuel, uh, among yeah. other applications. Uh, uh, the, main problem, uh, the main problem was also that they spent 12 years promoting that they were using clean diesels efficient as a race fuel, fuel yeah. and it was cool. And then it turned out that they were not actually using clean, efficient fuel through their own virtue, willingly. Yeah. So, I understandably, they were like, "We're going to stop racing our diesels." Right. That was widely regarded as a good call from everybody outside of racing, uh, but everybody in racing who liked the car uh, had mixed feelings because, on the one hand, uh, the R18 e-tron was cool because it was a diesel hybrid, uh, but on the other hand, uh, don't cheat emissions. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, there, there's you know, a complicated factor n- behind n- that. You know, all in all, neutral on the whole situation. Oh. <laughs> um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> But what we've had since then, since LMP1, has been this new era, the hypercar era at the top class of Le Mans. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. We'll talk about the current state of play. But I just want to point something out here quickly before we move on. In the last 20 years, so since 2002, we have had every single edition of the 24 Hours of Le Mans, except for the 2011 race and the 2013 race, wherein we have covered more than 5,000 kilometers. 5,000 kilometers? 5,000 kilometers in 24 hours. 5,000 so kilometers. So I'll change my knowledge. That's like, that is ridiculous. So that is the kind of level of efficiency we are getting to here. We're almost getting to the point where we're hitting 400 laps of Le Mans de, uh, the circuit. And you look at the improvements that we've made over that that period of time. So uh, something that gets quoted is that in 2017, at the peak of the hybrid era, the cars there were using a third less fuel than cars from 10 years prior in the in the diesel era. A third less fuel, and still going that's five five thousand kilometers in 24 hours. Five thousand kilometers is that what like almost the distance across Canada? Yeah, actually, I think it is. <laughs> it's actually pretty close. <laughs> I know it's far enough where you would need an oil change. Yeah, 5,000 kilometers is like... I'm going to distance check right now. Fact checking right now. It's it, like to, to think about how far that is, is just a, kind of absurd. Like, I, I, I can't actually put it into... Like, my brain just breaks at that thought. Yeah, it's about... It's 5,200 yeah. across Canada, so yeah, pretty close... <laughs> 
It's like flying from the top of Australia to Hong Kong. Oh wow! Yeah, That's pretty far. So it's kind of kind of absurd when you put it that way. Um, it's like going from Paris to let's get another distance check. Uh, Dakar. Yeah, there you go. It is a Paris Dakar rally in twenty four hours. Yeah, and and, and well, and then, and then driving another eight hundred kilometers, but far out. You know, they should make a race like that. That'd be pretty cool. That that would be nuts. Uh, so that that's the sort of level that we're getting to. It's like almost an entire F1 season in one race, which is it's an interesting point too. Pretty pretty crazy. Um, but let's talk about Jeb this year. Hello. We've got this year. We've got big race today. Big. It is a big race. Big uh, race this year. It's the centenary event. Uh, uh, yeah. I almost called you, Chris. It's the centenary event, Jeb. No, nope, not quite. Um, yeah, you're right. So. You, you mentioned the Toyota. You mentioned Toyota years. You mentioned Toyota uh, that they won a few races in a row to not much competition. Um, part of that is, of course, you know the fact that everyone else has pulled out. But you know, it's it's hard to really gauge Toyota's success, even though they've won the last five in a row, because they haven't really had all that much competition. Um, we talked a little bit briefly. Uh, we mentioned how you know Toyota's sordid history at Le Mans. You know coming close to winning in 1998-2000-1998-2014-2016-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2017-2
uh, privateer entries from Glickenhaus and Vanwall, uh, which is actually by collars. And racing uh, sports car fans will have a little chuckle about that, and everyone else will go, who? Um, but we've got, yeah, 16 cars in the top class. That's basically almost an F1 grid. And based on what we've seen this season, you could you could say that maybe a half to two thirds have a legitimate shot at victory uh, in this race. There's, there's, it's quite level across the playing field, even though Toyota have won every race so far this season. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, you always you always get wild things to happen at Le Mans. I never like to think that just because somebody's dominant means they will do well at Le Mans. We've seen cars that have been dominant wreck out of Le Mans. They have mechanicals. You know, there's so much going on with it that I don't like to pick favorites. I always find it pretty hard to choose who I think is going to win Le Mans. Um, but we've definitely got an interesting lineup this year, which was such, such a variety. There's so much. I mean, we're going to be doing an episode in the future on the grid rundown and kind of giving a, a full briefing for the event uh, because there really is a lot to unpack this year. Absolutely. And if you're a new fan jumping in, this is the perfect time to jump in because what you're watching is the dawn of a new era, effectively. You know, not just the centenary event, but you know part of you know the reason that so many manufacturers are here are because of that sure but also it's an attractive rule set that has brought a lot of different people to the table like 16 cars the last time Lamar had a competitive top class was maybe 2015 where you had you know 12 cars from Audi uh Audi Toyota Porsche and Nissan in the top class but even then like the the fact that we have got such a tight window of of performance that encapsulates all 16 cars is kind of nuts and you know you can't underestimate the 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 team red at Lamar uh the the fact that Ferrari is back after 50 something years is kind of special oh absolutely i mean it just for for the history buffs like myself it, it is a huge deal having like you said just the concept of a manufacturer being out for so long and being back like with the, the F1 guys when Alpha came back right mm. but also i mean they've got good lineups and they've proven that they've had a good car this year i mean maybe don't look at the the hybrid issues from 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 portimao but uh was yeah, it portimao? Fine. uh that's fine yeah don't worry about it. Uh, you know we fixed it we fixed it we fixed it. we're good we're fine it's uh you know we're good <laughs> yeah but when you look at i mean hey the car is beautiful but also just them being back it kind of shows it's like okay like you know we got we got the we got the big names here right we have oh we got cadillac like the you know the the gm chevy we got general motors Porsche, Ferrari, Toyota, like it's like we're like we're back, guys. We're yep. Peugeot. Sorry, apologize. Uh, th- uh, we're back, right? Like th- 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 this is going to be it, regardless of what happens, dude. This could be the most. Th- there could be zero overtakes in hypercar this entire race, and it will still be a good race because we'll get to see what these cars actually do. And I think as well, we'll get to finally see Toyota up against it with actual competition, um, and, yeah. and whether or not that actually. Legit, not legitimizes, but like recontextualizes their past success because it makes it. It's very hard to contextualize how good Toyota have been when they haven't really had anyone to beat but the event. Um, so that is that is a, an entirely different conversation to have, and that's what something we'll talk about in our hypercar preview, which will be coming up at some point in the future, probably. Right, and, and I mean, especially just just real quick before we move on, I mean, especially with cars we have seen that are optimized for Le Mans, like mm. the Peugeot, particularly. Mm. Right, it it will be interesting to see if 
the way I know we're, we're going to talk about this in the, the hypercar, so I will keep it short. But it'll be interesting to see if, because like, let's be honest, the wingless car is clearly obviously optimized for Le Mans. Like, yeah, the, there's no, they're, they're not using it for Monza, right? So it will be interesting to see if that actually works. Because if it doesn't, they're going to be really upset. <laughs> Just a little <laughs> if it, bit. If, if it doesn't, there will be a lot of engineers that are very not happy. Well, it, <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be the first time that something designed specifically for Lamar has not done well specifically at Lamar. Has Le not done well. Yeah. Uh, yes. Just, oh, absolutely. Just think back to the the Nissan uh, LM, Nismo LMP1 GTR of um, of the Nissan program. Like, sure, that car was half baked and didn't have an operational hybrid, which meant that the rest of the car kind of broke down. Out. But like that that would have been an incredible concept had it worked, and it didn't. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, that also got messed up by. Everything else, the hybrids, the yeah. hybrid supplier decided they just weren't going to be a hybrid supplier. Yeah, but <laughs> classic. That's all the conversation. Um, so, be, not just we don't just have hypercar in this race. Sixteen cars would be, you know, a pretty empty race. We also have two lower classes in this event, two effectively separate races uh, running on the same track, and both of those are absolutely packed with quality. The first of those is LMP2. So LMP2 is basically the lower tier of prototype racing. They are a uh, 550 horsepower, uh, 700-ish kilogram uh, bespoke prototype race car um, with the absolute peak of amateur motorsports. And this is something we haven't really talked about much yet, um, is the fact that Amateur racing at Le Mans, as in people who aren't professional race drivers, is a key component of the race and of of sports car racing. And in this category, you are required to run at least one driver out of your three that is an amateur dra- driver, a, a FIA-rated silver or lower. So that that is an important factor that plays into this class. But also, Jeb, we have 24 cars, 24 cars in this class, which is more than an F1 grid, it's most of an IndyCar grid, and it's almost as much as a touring car grid in some parts of the world, and it's absolutely packed with talent. You look at drivers in this class like Felipe Albuquerque, Oliver Jarvis, uh, uh, what, who else is on here that people would know? Um, there's a few F1 drivers here that I'm just trying to find one. Guido Vandergaard, former F1 driver. It, it, this, this class is absolutely packed with talent. Yeah, it's it's definitely. I mean, so a lot of people. View, the problem is a lot of people view P two drivers as the guys who didn't make it in the big leagues. It's not necessarily true, right? There's just not enough seats in the big leagues, yeah. right? And and so that's why you get really interesting racing in P two because you usually get guys who honestly are probably overqualified for the role, uh, just absolutely duking it out in these cars. And because they are all, you know, they're all built roughly to the same regulations. I mean, these are all Oricas, so they are. Built the same, exactly the same. Car, uh, yeah. uh, it the bat the race is that much better. It's it's like watching racing in like a spec series like an MX5 Cup compared to like a GT4, right? Like you you just do get closer racing because of it. And also the cars sound awesome. They look awesome. They've been around for years, so they've been around for years, so you know what to expect. And they they can race them well and they can run them well and do some good laps. But you also do still get the occasional weird thing that happens, which is you know that. It's always something racing. funny that happens at Le Mans. So yeah. I was cutting holes in bodywork, you know, things that shake. You got to hit them weird. You, know, yeah. you got to take a thing out and unplug it and then plug it back in and shake it a bit. And it works and it only works sometimes. You got to hold it while you're driving. You know, that's the fun part, right? That, that is endurance racing in a nutshell. Um, I just want to pull out, pull out a few other names here that are, are going to be uh, pretty in- intense for people to uh, to hear about. Um, so we've got in this in this class as well, 
Um, Robert Kubica is racing in this class, which is pretty crazy. Manuel Maldonado, the cousin of Pastor Maldonado, is in this class, which is right. a little a, a little funny. Um, there's a lot of drivers who came up through the F1 feeder series ladder and then have pivoted into this sort of racing. So people like uh, Matteo Vaxavier, uh, Louis Delatraz, uh, who else? Um, it, it's hard looking yeah. at just a list of names. Job Van Oetert, who's who's jumped across. Um, so it's, it's really a class that is absolutely filled with talent. And if you've not watched a lot of sports car racing before, just pick a car, just pick a car in this class and just track it throughout the race. And it will really make you invested in what is arguably the best series of like the best class of racing in the world at the moment. Yeah, I would actually agree. I'm actually, uh, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go on a rant about it, but I am actually very upset they're getting rid of LMP2. I've always maintained, I've always very strongly maintained LMP2 as the class that offers the best racing in sports car racing and statement. Um, and that's why I always, you know, the, the problem is P2 often gets swept under the rug, especially now that we have the new fancy hypercars, mm. which is perfectly valid, right? The hypercars are awesome. But the P2, P2s are like your fallback class. If, if there's not a battle in your top class, P2 always has something going on. Even if it's not necessarily a battle, even if it's just somebody who just decides, hey, I'm going to do a stint that's just the fastest stint of my bracing oh, career. right. Yeah. It's, hey, I'm going to go two seconds faster over this stint. It's like, okay, well. Okay, cool. <laughs> why? Yeah, we'll run hour 14 of a 24-hour race, but I'm sure, you know. It is. It, it is. It, Go ahead, sorry. The, the P2s, the P2s aesthetically, in my opinion, look the best, maybe the second best compared to some of the hypercars. They sound the best, uh, and they race the best, right? There's a reason this class has stuck around for so long with relatively no modifications apart from me putting a roof on it. Yeah. Over in what, like 2016 or something? 2017, yeah. 2017, thank you, yeah. It, I mean, it, it really is the best race. That's why I'm glad to see what the, what the class will do uh, in the future. I mean, IMSA said they're going to keep using them, ELMS. You know, it's it, it really is some awesome racing. Absolutely, and I, I will continue to spruik LMP2 at anyone who will listen, and that includes you, my friends from work, who have been saying that they're going to get into sports car racing, but they haven't yet. LMP2 is the best type of racing around the world. Um, and like, well, we're going on about driver talent, but let's talk about team talent as well. In these, in these teams are some of the best engineers and race teams that exist in the world at the moment. You wouldn't recognize some teams from things like F1 feeder series, like Prema Racing, but teams that you might not know uh, who are absolutely the very best of the best teams in the world are things like United Autosports, Jota, WRT. WRT uh, completely changed the game when they entered LMP2 for the first time because they just... They, they were just the consummate professional and they blew everyone out of the water immediately. And like, no one was surprised. No one who knew WIT was surprised that they blew everyone out of the water immediately. But what that has done is that's raised the standard again. So, you know, the guys in United Autosports, in Jota, uh, have come to the party and have, it's, it's, it's the best racing series. It's the best series in the world. <laughs> Watch it. True. Um, and below LMP2 as well, we also have a quite healthy GT class in what is GTE's swan song performance. Uh, after this year, GTE will be phased out and be replaced with GT3. So this is the last opportunity for GTE, 
which is kind of like GT3 but souped up, to really perform at Le Mans. And it is, for the first time, entirely pro-am. So, uh, as we said in uh, the LMP2 section, uh, where car, uh, you're mandated to have one AM driver, in, G- in GTE, you're required to have two AM drivers, one rated bronze and one rated silver. So, bronze is, like, the very, like, the lowest rating, and then silver is the one above that. But it really, a lot of the pace in this class is determined by your bronze uh, bronze pace, but they the series does a lot to actually encourage the bronzes to do a lot of racing and because of that we've gotten to see as fans a lot of personality from from drivers who in years past would have just been called mobile chicanes and jeb i think one of the favorite drivers of the series as a whole is a bronze driver right yeah uh, mr keating funny enough i was actually talking about ben keating with somebody earlier but uh ben keating i mean just I'm trying to figure out where to even start with the guy. Probably one of the fastest, probably the fastest AM driver on the open market uh, to the point where he, he might as well be considered a factory driver now. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, for Corvette. And, uh, but it still is an amateur driver. I believe he's a, deal, a car dealer in Texas. Yeah. So his day job is selling cars and his night job is racing the cars that he sells. Racing, racing cars. And he's quite good at it too. I and mean, there's a lot of people that think they can drive race cars that honestly cannot uh, and Ben Keating's one of the guys who's like, yeah, I think I could drive a race car, and then hopped in a race car, and it turns out he's and it's incredibly good at driving a race car. And uh, as a result of which, any ma- manufacturer, any team ever that needed to have an amateur driver saw Ben Keating on the market win everything and go when and the, the teams collectively went, huh? So uh, Corvette was uh, picked him up, I and mean, he was with uh, was it was it would have been Riley? So yeah, he he, uh, yeah. he he and Riley Motorsport have always had a really really close relationship. But Keating's philosophy is he always wanted to race cars that he could sell, and. In that, he has jumped around a few different times to a few different things. So in Le Mans, I believe he's raced a Porsche. He's raced a Corvette. He's even raced a Ford GT. Raced a Ford GT, yeah. yeah. The only customer driver team to ever race the Ford GT was given to Ben Keating. Um, and he's raced an Aston Martin as well for TF Sport. Um, it was with Team Project One for a while. He, he's had a, a dip in a lot of different things. Um, but I, I think that just shows the quality of ben keating as a as a driver as well and this is by the way this is like your most stereotypical texan dude in his like mid 50s as well like if you haven't seen the um the wc full access from sebring uh watch the intro to that to get an idea of ben keating as ben keating the man because it's basically like you could not have you couldn't come up with a more texan guy effectively Today I learned Ben Keating is only 51 years old. He, I thought he was a lot older. He's he's young at heart, and that's definitely true. Um, yeah. But that that aspect of having a bronze driver, someone who spends most of their time not racing cars, really makes this class probably one of the most topsy-turvy classes, but also gives it a lot of personality. Um, so I would suggest, again, if you're new to this event, pick one or two or three cars in this entry list, something that jumps out at you, whether you're you're a big fan of uh, big American V8s and you want to support Chevrolet, or you look at that beautiful pink Porsche of the Iron Dames and go, damn, a car with three ladies that are actually competitive? I want a piece of that. Or if you look at the entry list and see, you know, a name that you recognize, like, say, Michael Fassbender, and you go, hey, that's that TV guy. What is he doing in this motor race? I'm going to follow that car because... Yeah, it's that TV guy, and he races cars. I mean, yeah, that's an accurate... 
real. Don't know what Michael Fassbender does as a day job. Now, but, now you do. He's he's an actor. He was in that Assassin's Creed movie. That no oh, one knows he? about. I was I sorry. I was looking for the other actor that is villain with Proton Competition, but I, he's not in this. I don't see. No, unfortunately not. Uh, but he is there as a team name. Uh, so. Oh, there you go. For for a while there, Patrick Dempsey was racing at Lamar for Proton uh, Racing, but he doesn't do that anymore, which is really sad. Um, but there's a lot of personality in this class. Uh, you just got to kind of look and find it. So uh, keep your ears out for a GCM preview that we'll do as well to go through all of these drivers, tell you a bit about where they're from, so that way you can, yeah, follow a car and see what it's like. And because let's be real, GT racing is incredible because of how close all the cars are, and GTE at Lamar is even more so. And this season, we haven't needed the GTE Pro class. There used to be a Pro class which had, like, full factory efforts that was just, like, absolutely bonkers and, you know, door-to-door door banging or whatever. But we haven't needed that this year because the, the GTEM has done exactly the same. And it's it's been awesome. Yeah, it, it, it really... GT racing is always quite interesting, especially just because of the nature of... The cars being a, a little bit beefier, because every once in a while they will bounce off each other, which is kind of funny. Mm. But it just it, they just drive a lot different compared to the prototypes, which is what makes them fun. Particularly if it starts raining, mm. because the GTs usually get the, the mechanical grip. A GT will obviously handle differently in a rain, but a prototype will handle a lot more differently. In the yeah. Rain. So and that's that's the splice of life. That's what it makes things interesting. And remember as well, you've got basically three races running at the same time. So the GT cars embroiled in their own battle will be obstacles for the prototypes to come through. And that that is when I think sports car racing is at its very best. And the 24 Hours of Lamar does that very, very well. There's one more car on the entry list, Jeb. Uh, and it is a, a bit of a tradition for Lamar to have a, an innovative car. A, what used to be called Garage 56 because it used to be the 56th right. entry. Um, but this year, it's something... A little different, something from your neck of the woods, not quite, but around your your area. Tell us about the, the Garage oh. 56 entry, the innovative car. So the innovative car this year is effectively a NASCAR Next Gen uh, Cup Series car uh, that is uh, uh, on crack. Um, <laughs> they made modifications to make it race for the longer races, uh, bigger tank, uh, a little bit more aero, and by a little bit more aero, I mean a, a, lot, a lot more aero, a lot more splitters, a lot more... Uh, arrow on the back and uh you know creature comfort for the drivers uh mainly mainly you know a little flaps so they can get out a bit better uh because because yeah these cars don't have doors <laughs> so that'd be fun um but yeah it's, i mean it's been headed it's being uh kind of spearheaded by hendrick motorsports who are uh, i mean a staple in nascar i believe they are the, hold the nascar team record for most wins uh and are generally regarded as good uh and uh so he, he'll he know how to run a car right i mean hendrick has mm been running race cars since way before i was even thought of and so he'll be good at that in terms of the driver lineup i mean an all-star lineup jimmy johnson who's seven nascar championships mike rockefeller who is there and uh jensen Button, wow that's the, so uh, rude to rocky <laughs> no i'm kidding no no rockefeller is, is i just couldn't name any stats for him off the top of my head <laughs> yes he, he definitely has a lot of attributes i just could not remember them um what? And then Jensen Button's also there. The interesting part, though, about this layup is that, so Jimmy Johnson, this is a developing situation. Jimmy Johnson is obviously supposed to be in this car. It's a bit of a big deal. Uh, but the problem is that uh, Jimmy Johnson is also going to be racing in the Coke 600, which is NASCAR's race, the longest race, and it's tomorrow. 
problem is, as of the time of recording, 10.43 p.m. and 37 seconds on the Eastern Seaboard. Oh, my God. It is raining in Charlotte. In Charlotte. And it is going to rain for, like, the next two days. And the problem is they might have to push that race to the Tuesday. And Jimmy Johnson has said if they push the race to the Tuesday, that means he can't go to Lamont to do his his uh, his rookie testing or, like, his, some of his practice stuff. And so that puts him in an interesting situation. Don't know what that means, right? Don't know what that means. Don't know if 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 that if that's uh if he doesn't do that, he can't do Lamar. But he has said he he was supposed to be in Lamar for his rookie competitor training on Wednesday, and if they postpone the race from tomorrow, he might not make it in time. From what it's basically from what it sounds like, what he said is if they postpone it from tomorrow, he will not make it in time. Mm. I don't know how that works. It officially just is just listed as rookie competitor training, which makes me think it's like a meeting. I so there's, so, there's no way it's on track activity. So what it is, it's, right. it's, a, simu- it's a simulation test. So uh, as I oh, said, okay. that there's 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 uh, a regulation that like during the lead up to the event to the race. Every driver's going to do five laps at night to, in order to qualify yeah. for the race. Um, if you haven't raced at Le Mans before, they make you do a, a a training session wherein they throw a bunch of different scenarios at you, passing in traffic at night, all those sort of things. And so that way they can check that you're up to up to scratch. And drivers have been excluded off the basis of their uh, rookie training and uh, of their on-track <laughs> activity in the lead-up. Last year, we had a driver, um, uh, Felipe Simodomo, who was uh, involved in three accidents in the practice sessions who in uh, like as a result got excluded from the event so you know you must be at a certain standard to be allowed to race here and like that's you know it doesn't matter if you're a cup champion or an IndyCar driver or someone who's you know won a million races on the other side of the world if you are not able to race at the standard that Lamar dictates then you won't be allowed so I'm not sure if they will waive it you know Jimmy Johnson has done multi-class racing at Daytona in the last five years or so so he might be able to sneak through on that but it's it's it'll really depend and I I'd imagine they might be able to reschedule it. It's not like he was being negligent, yeah. right? He had a contract and then, you know, got messed up because weather happened. Yeah. Right? And quite literally an act of God. And, right? and so. you know, drivers have been waived from their rookie test. I think when uh, the 4GT program was introduced, which contained a lot of uh, IndyCar drivers, um, because IndyCar had an event the same day as the rookie test, you know the guys the like of yes. of Sebastian Bourdais at Al were able to be waived from the rookie test because like you know Sebastian Bourdais a multi multi time Indy car champion has raced four F1. times Indy car champion so like he's, yeah he's probably he's probably fine he can, yeah I, mean, I understand that they still want to res- they still respect that they still need to do their test right because it is different level different type of racing mm. but uh, yeah they might waive him especially because it's an innovative car. Right, they yeah. might be like, "Well, you're not really fighting for anything," but it also is a very different, innovative car. This is true. I yeah, it'll, it'll be an interesting development, regardless. We'll be able to talk about it in our GTM preview episode. Yeah. So, th- uh, that's... or alternatively, the skies clear up in Charlotte tomorrow, and this is this entire talk conversation was for nothing. Brilliant. No one will know if it if it wasn't for nothing. I'll just cut it, and no one will know. Oh, there you go. Um, 
so that's the current state of play across the the three classes that make up Lamar this year. There's a few other things that if you're watching for the first time, you should know. Uh, so we've talked about the driver ratings. There's also limits on driver times. So I believe it's uh, any driver cannot do more than four hours of any six and you can't be in the car for more than, I think it's also, uh, I think it's three hours in a row. Um, and that's all about like driver management and driver safety. Um, so trying to uh, you know, manage your drivers, uh, your strategies around the likes of, you know, making sure your pro driver's in the car when you're at the best, using the best tires and all that sort of stuff and making sure your AM driver fulfills the requirement because the AM driver also has to do a minimum of six hours. So there's a, a few different pieces of the puzzle um, that really set up the event. Now, Jeb, what's your thoughts on the the AM driver minimum time? Is that something that is, uh, you know, important for the... Well, not that it's not important because, of course, it's important for the race, but is that something that you think should be mandated or should it be just, like, left up to the drivers themselves to manage that? Uh, I think it should be mandated for the AM time. I just... I don't know. Because then you get weird situations where you get a yellow and a team pits and they put the AM in for one lap and then they pull them back out again and it's not as... You know, yeah. Oh, the Ed Jones it, strategy. It, it, it leads to yeah, it it leads to cop outs. Um, and so I think the having at least some sort of minimum draft. I now that being said, I don't think I would make the minimum draft time too high. I would make it like a decent amount. The main key is that, so, in a perfect world, if your AM driver isn't that bad, you wouldn't have a problem going over the minimum time, mm. right? You'd go okay. Well, I'll just put them in the car, whatever, right? But there are some AM drivers that are simply just not good, right? Let's just be honest. There's, there yeah. are some AM drivers that are not good at driving race cars. Uh, and so you need that minimum in there in order to keep that aspect of it. Because otherwise, if then there would be no motivation to hire an AM driver. Well, it's not right? really hiring to, an AM driver. To, the AM driver is often the one who's bringing the money to the team. Yeah, that's... Sorry, that that, that is a fair point, but the, the, you wouldn't have a reason to... Uh, basically, I feel like ha- not having a minimum would just lead to a lot of arguments within teams about amateur drive time. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Right. And so, no, I don't know the show. I'm not saying that every single team's going to be arguing like that, but you know, I don't know. It's it's a it's a very it's difficult. It's definitely balancing a weird, act. it's a double edged sword. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it's it's a difficult balancing act because of course you want to be fast, but also the AM drivers you know need to have an effect on the results. So I think six hours for the AM driver, which I think I'm pretty sure is the current regulation. You know, a quarter of the race that's a pretty good um good chunk, and it also it leaves enough room for strategy. So I remember a few years ago when Ben Keating was driving in the Ford GT, they backloaded all of his drive time. So they did all six hours in the last 10 hours of the race. And the reason for that was that it was the best conditions for the car, the fastest conditions on track. And they'd seen that uh, they'd built, they'd already built a, a significant lead at that point that Keating was almost able to hold on to. So that, that was, uh, an interesting strategy, an interesting way of doing things. And it, you know, allows for that sort of ebb and flow of the race to happen. Um, so that's, that's the, the drive time regulation. So yeah, every AM driver must do six hours. That's bronze and silver drivers. And no driver can do more than three hours in a row. And no driver can do more than four of any six. So a few little pieces to try and put together there. Um, what about the, uh, the stint lengths of these cars, Jeb? If I'm, putting on a fresh set of tires and a full tank of fuel, how far do you reckon I could get in each of the classes? 
In terms of time-wise, though, about 45 minutes for the P2s. The hypercars, probably also, probably, yeah, but a little bit long, like around there, but a bit longer. GTs, I think, consistently go about an hour, right? Yeah. That that yeah G, the GTs the GTs on like doing about an hour stint is pretty much like the standard in the industry nowadays. It's like your GT car will go an hour. Exactly, yeah. Um, and yeah, you you pretty much bang on forty minutes, forty five minutes, and about fifty minutes. So again, trying to fit the puzzles of driver time around your stint lengths is is an interesting sort of mix there. And uh, as well, something that uh people from other series might not know is that um when you are doing your pit stop. Uh, a, you've got to have the engine turned off, which you know forces reliability concerns of restarting the engine sure. every single time. Um, but B, you can only refuel and change tires separately. So that means that like you can fuel the car, but once the fueling stops, then you can start changing tires. And the changing tires, you know, takes a significant amount of time. So you kind of have to weigh up how much you're going to gain with new tires versus how long it's going to cha- take to change them, and that leads to some fascinating strategies because you know you can run the risk of completely running out of tire and losing a lot of grip uh, by uh, by choosing not to change them. But on the other hand, if you can hold on to, you know, half a second a lap of drop-off um, over the course of a stint, then, you know, the 25 seconds it takes to change the tires might actually be uh, a disadvantage. Yeah, it's... It, it... That's where the strategy aspect comes in. Lamont does offer a weird section... or oh, Sorry, weird in that section... Uh, yeah, I guess a weird section in like the strategy department, where because it's it is one of the few tracks like the Nurburgring stuff like that, where it is your stints are long distance but low lap count, mm. and so that's where you start running into really weird situations of like, oh, well, we save a bit of bit, save a little bit of fuel over a stint, and we get an extra lap. And it's like, well, when your lap's that long. That's, that's hard. not really feasible. Yeah, right? that's you hard. You kind of need a miracle, but more importantly, your numbers need to be more accurate because if there is a problem, it's a very long distance back. Mm. Right. And we've seen cars run out of fuel in the pit entry. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. All the time. Yeah. It, it, you, they run it really, really close to the end here. Um, so there's a few things that, uh, and safety, something else as well, the safety car uh, procedure, like, that's something that's going to be new for this year, and we'll talk a little bit about explaining how that works. But there's there's two different kinds of ways that race control can neutralize the race. The first one is the slow zones. So there's nine sections around the track where the race control can implement a, I think it's 60 kilometer per hour limit. Um, and that basically keeps the, the race flowing without having to neutralize the whole race. I quite like the slow zones. Uh, Jeb, what are, you, what are your opinion? What's your opinion? Yeah, no, I love the slow zones. I think they're a really good... Um compromise to uh the local yellow were good and uh and then having to throw a safety car for stuff like that uh i i think the co- the slow zone when done correctly which it usually is is the perfect compromise uh in that department right because it allows for like track surfaces and stuff like that to, to be safely done but it also allows the race to keep going Right, hmm. I, 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 it, for me, it is the perfect middle ground of uh, like on the situation. Yeah, but when a safety car does need to be called, Le Mans does something pretty unique. So there's not one safety car; there's actually three safety cars. So one at the start finish straight, one that pops out at the Mulsan, the first chicane in the Mulsan, and then one that pops out. I believe it's at Arnage. Um, but they're doing something a bit different this year. Now, Jeb, do you feel confident in telling us about what they're doing? 
little bit. Okay, so basically, uh, they're gonna use a yellow. Oh, they use a safety car, right? If they have to use a safety car. Um, and then what they're gonna do is they're gonna have the three safety cars like they do normally. I'm pretty sure, right? I gotta yeah. remember. Uh, three normals. You know, they come by, they open, the, they open the pits. You can pit. They close it. Tail goes by. You open it back up. You can catch a safety car, right? Um, but it sounds like basically when they get to near the end of the near the end of the safety car period, I what I would describe as possibly the uh, the one to go part. Uh, they are going to. Uh, have both of the, the sorry, two of the three safety cars pit, and then whichever safety car has the leader will will, will stay out, and then everybody will catch the leader. Well, the the, the everybody will catch the what is now the safety car. <laughs> I don't actually remember what happens at that point. I think that's where they do their wave buys, right? Yeah, so they do a series of wave buys and drop backs to call it sort of split into class orders. Effectively, a class split. Yeah. It's it's like an IMSA class split, but it just a little bit weirder. And then uh, and then the safety car will pit when, once the, the you know the, the, the safety car period is almost done. Safety car will shut its lights off. It'll pit, and then we'll go racing again, and everybody will be all grouped up, and it'll be nice. It's a pretty interesting way of doing things because you, what you're yeah, going to end up it's... with is sixty cars all going green at the same time at the same point of the circuit, which is kind of nuts. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's going to be interesting. In all honesty, the, I did prefer the old three safety car method. I think the problem that they're trying to solve is, like I said, like we saw it, I think it was 2016, where the GT battle got broken up because of it. Mm. Um, now, I would imagine there are probably better ways of doing it than this. Officially, this does solve the problem. It groups everybody up. It's preserved the battles, mm. right? But the problem is it doesn't preserve the gaps. Now, no safety car will preserve the gaps, right? Yeah, that's why the slow zone is good. That's why the slow zone is good, right? But there are some situations where you, you kind of just need a bit more than that, right? And so it, it's, I don't know. It's it's such a, it's, it's a such an odd topic. Yeah. It's, you know, it's... It, it's a difficult problem I don't know. to solve. There's, it is. It's like it's on. So here's the thing. Regardless, regardless what your thoughts are on it, I think we've all had we've watched a race that has been long, and and you just you're just like we got a we got a bunch of things up. Like we we just we nothing's nobody's battling anybody. We we need someone to we need a safety car. We just bunch things up. But we've also been watching races where there's an incredible battle going on. Uh, or somebody has a good lead through just straight merit, and then a safety car comes out, and all that's gone and ruins everything. Right. Yeah, yeah, right. Like it's like it's so hit or miss as to whether or not. Because I've, I've had friends who are like diehard like racing fans, as in like you know they're all about like like proper official racing, Formula One, all that. Blah blah. blah. Like it's you, you know they they are sophisticated, right? They're not just like yeehaw. And I have had those people say to me, yeah, we need to yell at a bunch of things up. Like, this race is getting stale, right? But I've also had people who are, you know, all about the show and they want the action say that they don't like safety cars because it, it artificially bunches people up. They want it to be natural, right? It, like, it's there's so many aspects that, that, that it... There's so many aspects to the topic, mm. especially with the single safety car at Le Mans. Yeah, um, it's going to be a, a really interesting to see how it plays out. Um, I think the the one that you talked about, uh, the GT battle being broken up in 2016, part of the issue yeah. for that as well was that the BOP that year was so close that no one had a chance to really catch up the gap without the leader making a mistake. 
um, because you could only gain like a tenth of a second a lap. And, you know, if you've gained a minute and a half through a safety car uh, split, then a tenth of a second of a lap is not going to cut it. So it's going to be an interesting uh, way of doing things and to see whether or not it improves the racing product or doesn't. So we shall see. Jeff, we're getting close to the end of uh, the podcast here. Uh, A few things I wanted to ask you just as a little discussion to end it. For those who might not uh, have watched a 24-hour race before, one of the questions they might have is, how the hell do you watch a 24-hour race? How do, Jeb, how the hell do you watch a 24-hour race? I uh, buy a ticket. Um, that's what I did. No, no. Uh, uh, so, yeah, this is actually really good. To, I remember having this conversation post-race. So, here, so here's the – this is going to really piss a lot of people off. Our DMs are open. Feel free to DM me if you disagree with me. I'll ignore it. <laughs> the key to watching a 24-hour race is not to watch all 24 hours. What? That's the actual key to watching a 24-hour race. What? Because – as somebody who has tried to watch 24 hours of a race, you don't remember all of it. That's where you get the, was it 20, I think it was 2017. Now, was it 26? Like, that's where you get that. You get that from being tired because you didn't watch all the race. The human body cannot watch 24 hours, one thing for 24 hours straight. No. You need to take breaks. That's the other key, too, especially. Even even if you're like, well, I don't really care, Josh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stand up. And I'm, I don't know why I did an accent. Uh I'm gonna I'm gonna watch all 24 hours myself. You know what? Good luck to you. God bless you. I hope that goes well. But stand up every hour. Get a mm. drink. You know, take a shower. You'd be surprised how sweaty you get just sitting in your chair just because you get excited watching Lamar. You know, it's it, get up, take exercise, eat food. Don't mm. drink energy drinks. Yeah, Ab- drink energy drinks if you want, but it's not going to go well. Absolutely. You know? a, a, a point on that, energy food will do better for you than energy drinks. Energy food, yes. Have, have, food. have some toast and some cereal. Yes, absolutely. Well, maybe don't mix them. But uh, race... <laughs> Someone in the chat says, race fans taking showers, impossible. Please, I trust you. There are people out there. You guys can do it. Believe in me. Uh, you have the power. But... Uh, you but, but yeah, take take care of yourself. I mean, if if you are actually going to do the twenty four hours, take care of yourself. Right, take breaks, stretch. Don't because I mean, just sitting for twenty four hours will hurt you. Yeah. You will be in pain. Right. Or, but if you're not adamant on watching all twenty four hours, take breaks. Take take sleep. Go to bed. Sleep for like six hours, seven hours. If you want to get a full eight hours, you're only going to miss what third of the race. That's I mean, it's not great, but. You know, it's but, not that much. Sleep overnight. Sleep through the morning. It's you know, sleep, there's nothing. Go to bed at midnight. Wake up at six. There's nothing worse than falling asleep late in the twenty-four hour race that you've tried to stay up through and missing the end. And right, exactly. So take care of yourself. Um, and the best thing about a twenty-four hour race is that when you go to bed, you wake up and they're still going. So you can yeah, you it, can just it, catch up on everything that you've missed. Exactly. It's part, well. More important. The key is like here's my opinion. So if the unfortunate part is this requires you to sleep through the early morning, which A, is not a foreign concept, and B, uh, you do miss some of the shenanigans on, on commentary yeah. or weird parts of race cars, right? But, but if you go to bed at like midnight and you wake up at like 6 a.m., that's six hours. I mean, like that's that's all right, mm. you know? That's a, that's, uh, that's a, that's a big, do that, normal big weekend. Like, that's totally fine. Yeah, it's like yeah, like six hours for one night is like you'll probably be fine. And right? if maybe you're... don't go, maybe don't operate heavy machinery. Yeah, but when you wake up at the six a.m., like you'll be able to then watch the rest of the race, right? Yeah, and like 
you know, it's it's not always about being there for every little thing that happens. You know, people right. will catch you up uh, if you've missed things. Um, I used to joke that like sleep is for the week. That's why racing happens on the weekend. Um, but as I've gotten a little bit older, d- definitely just like take a break, get some sleep. Like one of my favorite things to do during Le Mans is like to actually have the race on while I'm sleeping. Like just, just to have the cars zooming around and just, you know, just kind of tuned in and out. And then just like, obviously not loud, but like just to have it as kind of background noise, as ambient noise. Um, uh, but it is, you you really need to take care of yourself because the amount of stories I've heard of people who have missed things right at the end of the race because they've fallen asleep in the last hour or the last two hours is not a fun time. Um, yeah, absolutely. It, as, it was as also, well, go ahead. I mean, it's sports car racing, right? Like, let's, 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 let's be real, folks. Let's be real, folks. It's sports car racing. There's a lot of time where nothing happens. That's not. That's not the touch. It's about to No, no. Sorry, not much happens. It's still interesting, right? But let's be real. Like there, there are sometimes where you'll hit a period, and it's like it's just you don't slow. have to. You, yeah. do, you do not have to focus on this period to the point where your body would not be resting and recovering, mm. right? There is every once in a while where you're just like, yeah, like this is this this is like this is a highlight section. This is a section where it's like they ran through the night without issue. Cool. They use that section to go to bed. Right. I mean, uh, obviously, you cannot predict incidents. I'm not saying, oh, well, they're going to wreck in three hours, so I'll be sure to be awake for that. Right. But but take take care of yourself. Even if you're just going to do the, oh, I'm going to nap for two hours and I'll wake up and I'll nap for another two, two hours. That's eh, not a great sleep schedule. But, you know, you're at least still not just staying up straight for 24 hours. Yeah. The sleep is the biggest part of it. It's 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 like watching test cricket for for those on my side of the world. You know, you can watch all day and nothing will happen, but the one time you move, you look away, something will happen. It's a bit like that. If you've got it on for when you can tune in when things are happening, then that's a, a kind of a great way of doing it. Um, I always make sure that I'm watching uh, for the transition from darkness into light. That is my favorite part of the the race. That golden hour period where the sun rises and the cars go super fast. Mwah. Brilliant. What, what, it's the opposite. I enjoy the sunset. Is that because it's like at a normal time for you? Maybe, but even though, like the like the the sun coming up at Lamar is still like a pretty reasonable time for me. Really, I mean, so it's like one or two. But uh, but uh, I don't know. I just I find that the sunset. I don't know the sunset. The sunset shots look cool and and yeah. vibe looks cooler to me. It's true. I do love the sunset. The problem is it's like 4.30 in the morning for me. So that's often when I'm sleeping. Um, it The race kind of goes through a, bit, uh, a few phases. So like there's kind of the charge into darkness, the run through the darkness, and then the fatigue of the light. When, when the race goes back into day on that second day, it's almost as if everything is just a bit fatigued. And that's when you see often a lot of the, the biggest accidents is in, in that period of the race. Um that so that's always something to look out for. What what is your favorite period of the race? Well, that's a good question. Um, prob- so, probably like the midway point. The midway point. So the the middle of the night. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. That's a really good question. But yeah, I I, I just I don't know. Actually, I mean, I, I like all of it, but I I really don't know. Well, that's a good answer. You like all of it. Yeah. There you go. I like all of it. Yeah. No, none of them are my favorite. It's like uh, it's like all my children. I love you all equally, except yeah, I, I love all like, much. I, I I like the I like the run into sunset the most. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm gonna say like sunset, 
the bit before sunset, sunset, and then the like three hours after sunset. Nice. Basically, once the fireworks kick off, what they usually do is like what, like eleven, twelve local. It's like yeah, and then like about like an hour after the fireworks, it's like all right, it's my time to check out. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like like that's all right. We're we're hitting sleepy hours, right? And then we sleep, and then we wake up before we wake up like as the sun. Like and the keys are gonna be like like as the sun comes up, <laughs> like right as it like when you hit the twilight, then you get up. Yeah, that's a, that's a good time. It's a good time. Um, finally, uh, what sort of things can help your Le Mans watching experience? If you're watching for the first time, what what would you suggest to someone uh, in order to enrich their experience? What sort of things should they have on hand? Yeah, so uh, so first things, uh, get a good coverage of the race with uh, with broadcast, whether that be through you know through through TV if you're watching it, or Radio Le Mans, or other what other web sources stuff like that you know like like tv channels and stuff yep. like that get your get your live timing up the aco the Lama does have a live timing function uh set up the expert mode so you can actually know what's going on uh and that, that might will be, help that you might be a bit overwhelming uh for, for, for the for, for the new people it, yeah like... for the new people it might be but uh, what i think it does is get so get your stream watch your race second monitor second or on a phone or whatever if you are so inclined pull up the live timing because it might allow you to follow the race a little bit better. It might. It, it's one of those things where live timing can very easily confuse you and turn you off, but it can also very easily enrich and enrich and enrich your experience. Yeah. Enrich and enrich your experience, right? Because if, if you have a battle that you are trying to follow, well, it's not always going to be on TV, right? So you mm. can, you can, if you're inclined, look at the timing and see how it's going, right? Or see if it's ended and you've wasted your time. Um, that I find is pretty helpful uh, print out your spotter's guide. Get your spotter's guide. There's a reason it's called a spotter's guide. It's yeah. because it helps you spot things, right? Get your spotter's guide. Uh, I think uh, Andy I, Blackmore does it for the WC. So Andy Blackmore hasn't been doing it for a little while. Um, he, no! Yeah, I know, right? Um, but we will have... Uh, there's a, one made by one of the members of the RSSWC subreddit, um, uh, Zeonbel444, or he goes by Gros- Gro- uh, Groziak Mateos on uh, Twitter. Um, he's been doing a fan-made, fan-source spotter guide, not just for Lamar, but for a bunch of different events around the world. Um, in fact, this year, he actually got commissioned to do the spotter's guide for all of the Creventic 24-hour series, so well done to him. Um, uh, yeah. But he, he puts up a spotter's guide on a spotter's... Uh, a, what's, what's his website? Um, spotter dot spotters guide, and that will be linked in all of the race threads on the subreddit, all of the preview threads, and in the Discord as part of our resources as well. So pick that one up because that will have all the cars, all their numbers, all the drivers, all their driver ratings, all the liveries, so you're able to tell who's driving what, when, and what they look like. Yeah, and that's that's, that's super important. Oh, and you can also play along with our favorite game, which is the Black Mark of Doom. Yes, and uh, start uh, crossing out the cars that do not make it. That is always that is always hour. a tradition. Um, uh, I'd also get, I'd get, also suggest having something else on during the race, whether that is yeah, um, like something that you're building. Like I've just picked up the Peugeot 9x8 Lego set, so that's something that I'll be doing during the race. Um, or being involved in the community, whether that be on Discord here in the live chats, they can get pretty hectic, but they're also a good source of information on the yep. subreddit, on the uh, the comment thread there. Um, uh, so anything anything you can stick your time into in the background. Minecraft, it's another good one. Shadow Minecraft. 
other video games are available. <laughs> uh, some something you can dedicate attention to, but shift your focus between. Yeah, right? something the proverb the proverbial the proverbial YouTube video during your dinner, right? Something it's, like that. It's something like that, right? Now, not mandatory. I mean, you could just watch the race for twenty four hours straight if you get bored. You know, it's probably because you're just watching. You know, wide shots, especially at night. It's probably just because you're watching shots of headlights for like 12 hours straight. I love I that, could, though. On, I, if somebody told me that was boring, I would go, yeah, no, I, I understand that. I don't. Like, I, I, I love that. That is, that is like... That oh, is like, no, it's, yeah, it's no, so it is good. cool, but like, if, if for the new viewer, right, mm. just looking at like white orbs for eight hours might be a bit weird, right? So <laughs> do multiple things. Yeah. Also get some snacks, too. I usually like to buy my snacks the day before the race. Yeah. Um, if you're also thinking about taking breaks, though, because uh, we are talking about taking breaks and staying healthy earlier, uh, I mean, you could do it during the race. Um, I would maybe do it, try and try and find a lull to just yeah. quickly pop out, grab some stuff that might be part of your breaks. I know we have people in the Discord that take walks during the the mm. race, and like you can listen along to the commentary as well. That's something you absolutely yeah can exactly do. yeah um, it's absolutely just chuck an earbud in. And I would say as well, uh, for the first time viewer, pick a car in every class to follow. Pick a car in every yeah. class because that'll keep you Play invested. Play fantasy WC. That yeah, that'll keep you invested in what's happening in the lower classes. Because as you made mention, uh, Josh, the the lower classes can sometimes fall a bit under the radar, um, and there should be like there's fascinating things going on because every single car in this race will have its own story. And I, I think if you're able to follow on the story of a car that you might not have thought about before, um, that'll really enrich your experience um, of of watching the race. Because in a in a race with 62 cars. Uh, you know that's that's 186 drivers. So there's there's a lot going on outside of just the very top of the race. And I think for first time viewers, that's something that's new and scary and weird. But just pick a car, one car in every class, just to sort of follow, and that will help you contextualize and enrich your experience of of the race. I think. Yeah, I, I think that covers the base. Absolutely. Covers the bases. <laughs> uh, so the one track action kicks off. A week from recording this, so we're currently recording this on, for me, Sunday. Uh, for Jeb, I think it's Saturday. Um, but basically, we started yep. halfway through what Lamar would have been. Um, so a week from today will be the test day, where all the drivers and cars will be out uh, for the test. Then they'll have presage through uh, the town of Lamar, the scrutineering and all the media stuff. And then track action starts on Wednesday. On Wednesday, the uh, 8th of June, I think. Uh, 7th 7th. of June. 7th of June. Damn, I missed it up. Um, But there will be practice sessions. There will be a qualifying session. The top six from each class in qualifying will graduate into Hyperpole, which is basically like a shootout, effectively. A very, very short, no-holes-barred qualifying session. Then there'll be more practice. And then there'll be the race that starts on, uh, I think it's 4 p.m. Central European time on Saturday of the, I think that's the 10th of June. And that's the centenary event for Long 24 Hours. Can you believe that this event has been going for 100 years? Well, sorry, know, it started it's, it's, 100 years ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it, it is really crazy to think about. Uh, just the nature of how much has happened at that one venue when you think about everything that everything that has happened throughout the years it's uh it's crazy that's why that's why i'm 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 really excited for lamar this year i'm obviously i'm excited for lamar every Every year year. but uh this year additionally um 
so yeah, I mean, it's it's I can't wait. It's it's starting to. I mean, it's already like a little over a week ago or a week away, and I'm starting to get like that. All right, let's go. Pretty, let's uh, still, let's pretty, still, pretty anxious, like like a kid with Christmas. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it, I I I mean, I'm hoping this year's if it's the centenary, I'm hoping it's going to be a good one. It sounds like the ACO has. Uh, I've been working pretty hard to make this a good one. So yeah, and as well, so I have nothing but high hopes. Yeah, I think this is a good year to join because there's a, a great sense of uh, expectation, but like hopeful expectation. Everyone's keen to see what happens. Um, so there's uh, the support categories as well. There's Porsche Carrera Cup um, and also Road to Le Mans. I, I think the Sunday races before the main event are streamed, so that'll be good. Um, and both Carrera Cup and Road to Le Mans are pretty damn fun. Um, there's normally a yeah, rest. good racing. Yeah, absolutely good racing. Um, the Friday is generally a rest day for the main category. Um, so no racing on the Friday. Um, and then, yeah, the big build up to the race on Saturday. There's also going to be um, a series of uh, car kind of displays, parade laps, of a bunch of race cars that have won at Le Mans in the past. Something like 70 cars uh, being paraded around, um, which will be very, very cool um, as well. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be an absolute festival of motorsport. So, I hope you've enjoyed... Uh, our little preview, which has turned into a long preview. Um, I hope yeah. you're, you found something in this that will enrich your Le Mans experience. Thank you very much for joining me, Josh. Yeah, no, thanks. I appreciate you having me. I can't wait to be here for the uh, the, the, the previews for all the classes. Yeah, uh, that'll be that'll be our next thing, so that way you'll get up to date with all the drivers and all the classes uh, and everything. Um, hopefully, uh, you've yeah grabbed something out of this uh, that has been uh, helpful for you. And, uh, yeah, I hope we'll see you in the race threads on Reddit or in the Discord community on uh, on the Discord, of course. Um, and that you, that you enjoy what is going to be an absolute festival of motorsport. I'm Michael Alvari. Thank you very much for listening. Peace out. It's a good question. Um, say what you were going to say while I think about this. Well, I was going to say silent thinking is one of the most enthralling parts of you know audio content. So I really appreciate you thinking in silence for, for a little while. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs>